0: Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 73, verses 21 through 28. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. May God bless the reading of his word. Psalm that that John read for us uh, is not a psalm of David, but it fit too well to not use it this morning as we continue our series in the life of David. And so much of the early life of David overlaps with Saul that we can't help but talk about Saul. This the the beginning of this uh, passage that, that, that we just read from Psalm 73 talks about our ignorant ways. And man, I gotta tell you, when we are bittered, when we are uh, trapped in, in our sin and, and pursuing things that perhaps we shouldn't be shouldn't be uh, pursuing, we find ourselves going forth in ignorance and making bad decision on top of bad decision. What I love about this particular psalm though is about halfway through the passage we read, we, we see a flip where it talks about all right, okay, pursuing destruction that's uh, or pursuing sin that's never gonna work out, but what, what am I gonna do? I'm going to pursue the Lord. What we're going to talk about today is is Saul and how Saul has some bad goals. And as Saul pursues these bad goals, we see him make the same mistakes over and over again. And, And from the outside, as we look at this, it's obvious. Like, this is a really stupid move. This is, like, anybody with half a brain can see what he's doing, isn't going to work. But he's not outside. He's inside. And since he's inside, it looks right to him. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a horror movie guy, okay? I, I think I might have seen one horror movie by any definition that is a horror movie, and I'm like, this is not for me. I'm out, hard pass, not my genre, Okay, but there is kind of this, uh, this trope, if you will, about horror movies that the characters in the movie make dumb decisions to put them in positions to get killed, right? And matter of fact, this is such a cliche that Geico made a commercial about it. Do you guys remember that Geico commercial where the, the, they're being chased by the killer and uh, the guy says, let's go hide in that creepy attic. No, the basement. The, uh, the person goes... No, how about that running car? And the third, the, the other person jumps in and says, are you crazy? Let's hide behind the chainsaws. <laughs> and then the Geico announcer comes in and says, when you're in a horror movie, you make bad decisions. It's what you do. And now here's, here's where we're going today. Saul, Saul is pursuing a bad goal. And when you pursue bad goals, you make bad decisions. It's what you do. Now, when we think about the life of Saul, we think he's just become king. He's he's had successes. The people are following him. He's united the kingdom. And yet throughout his life, we saw in chapter 13, in chapter 13 we saw that he uh, couldn't wait for Samuel to make a sacrifice. And so he made a sacrifice, and God intervened and said, Saul From now on, your descendants aren't going to get the throne. God took away his legacy. And then we see him continue on, and in chapter 15, he doesn't destroy everything that God told him to destroy. He disobeyed God again, and God steps in this time and says, hey, it's not just your descendants that are going to miss out on the kingdom. I'm taking the kingdom away from you. I'm taking it away from you. And yet as we move through uh, the, the book of 1 Samuel, we see something. We see that Saul is in total denial. He's in total denial. God has made it plain, I'm taking your kingdom away from you. And yet we see him act in a way to preserve his kingdom, to preserve his legacy, and to protect his name. And what we see then is because he has a bad goal, defying God. I mean, just think about this. Why did God take away his kingdom? Because the man wouldn't listen to God and he continued to disobey. Now, now what do we see? God has taken away his kingdom, and he continues to defy God all through the process. But what I don't want us to miss is that throughout this whole uh, this whole time of him defying God, God continues to give Saul opportunities to repent and change directions. But because he's got a bad goal and he's committed to this bad goal, he blows straight past the warning signs, he blows straight past the off-ramps, and heads straight along into uh, destruction. Now I want you to think about this. Think about this in your own life. Now I hope we have relationships with people where we have an opportunity to provide feedback for them. And that they, from time to time, will confide in us. Maybe this is a sibling or a parent, maybe it's your children, maybe it's a good friend. But what we see, what we see in these moments is our friend will come to us, they will have a problem, and they will present their solution. They will present their solution. And you sit there and you go, bad move, friend. Don't do that. Now, if your friend is committed to a different goal than the right one, are they going to listen to you? no matter the outcome, no matter the off-ramp, no matter the warning signs, they seem committed. And that's what we see in the life of Saul. So today, we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 18, 19, and 20. And uh, as we look at these chapters, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see Saul's goal defied the consequences that God set on him. Saul's goal defied the consequences that God set on him. Second, God gave Saul a way to repent and follow God, but Saul would not pay the cost that it would to follow God, that it would cost. And finally, we're going to see that that when we defy God's plan, the consequences are often more significant than they would have been if we would have just obeyed. Oh, man, can I just get an amen? Like any parent out there, do you just go, come on, kid. Like if you would have just obeyed, we could have avoided a lot of this conflict. If you would have just obeyed. So, all right, let's jump in here and let's look at how Saul's gold defied the consequences set forth by God. All right, so we kind of already talked about this a little bit. But uh, where, we, where we show up today, uh, we're going to think back to chapter 16 before David fights Goliath. All right, God, uh, but after his two declarations that God uh, was going to take the kingdom from, from Saul, God says something in chapter 16. He says that he sent a harmful spirit to afflict Saul. Now, we kind of blew over that over the last few weeks as we've been talking about Saul, this harmful spirit, Uh, because I wanted to save it for later. Has anybody ever thought about this? Like, why did God send a harmful spirit to Saul? This, This does not seem right. This does not seem appropriate, what's going on here. Why on earth would God send a harmful spirit to afflict Saul? So today, I think we need to talk about this for a minute as we begin to move through and understand what's going on in the greater context. This sounds like a terrible thing. It sounds unlike God, but what we have seen is uh, that this we've we have seen as we've moved through the story of First and Second Samuel, God presenting a pattern of delivering His people, just like we saw Him deliver uh, His people from Egypt. We've seen that already in First Samuel. This parallel between God and His people uh, escaping Egypt and God and how He's establishing His kingdom now in First Samuel. Uh, so when we see this sinning of this harmful spirit, this is a lot like God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Here's what we need to understand. Pharaoh was not going to let, go, let God's people go on his own. He wasn't going to do it. But God began to intervene. And as God began to intervene, all of a sudden, letting God's people go seemed like a good idea. Because he was standing against God himself. But God didn't want his people to look back at Pharaoh and see Pharaoh as gracious and merciful. He wanted his people to understand that Pharaoh was utterly contemptible, that they would be tempted to go back to Egypt as they were in the wilderness, but God did not want his people to go back. So he hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he stood against God completely and so that God could send all 10 plagues against Egypt so that his people would know that Pharaoh had utterly rejected God that he had no mercy and compassion. And this is the big thing. Hear me on this. God wanted his people to know that it was him who set his people free and not the grace of Pharaoh. So that's why he hardened his heart. Now, let's talk about this uh, harmful spirit that was sent on Saul. Why did God send this harmful spirit? Saul was committed to a goal. He was committed to preserving his kingdom. He was Committed to his legacy, that he was going to hand this down. Now, God had already told him he wasn't going to keep the kingdom. He's already told him he was going to take away his legacy. And yet, he was committed to this wrong goal. So God hardens Saul's heart, sends a harmful spirit against Saul, so that Saul loses the kingdom. So that Saul is contemptible in the eyes of the people. So that Saul makes these dumb decisions over and over again so that we can see from the outside from the outside that God took away Saul's kingdom and gave it to David. Why does this harmful spirit come against Saul to take Saul's desire to take his pursuit of his own goals and make that pursuit obvious for all of us to see? Does that make sense? We can't be deluded now into thinking that, oh, you know, Saul, Saul was a good guy, you know. He was just a misunderstood leader. As we watch the life of Saul and we see this harmful spirit entice Saul into his own desires, that's something we need to understand, entice him into his own desires, his wickedness, his poor decision-making becomes utterly contemptible to us watching from the outside. And it becomes clear that Saul was never going to give the kingdom to David. All right. I got way off my notes, which is great. Okay, now also throughout this whole thing, what we need to understand is that that Saul needed to uh, lose lose a a few things. If there was going to be a transition to a new king, what needed to happen? First off, if you're going to have a new king... Then you don't want there to be civil war in the meantime, right, as there's transition. So you need the heir to the throne to be behind the new king. The heir to the throne needs to be behind the new king. All right, secondly, you need to lose the support of the royal family in general. That's helpful, all right? And you need to lose the support of the people. So if you're going to have a new king, the heir doesn't want Saul to be king. His family doesn't support him very well and the people themselves are withdrawing their support, or at least throwing their support behind another. That's a great way to see a transition of power. If there's going to be this peaceful transition, then support not only needs to leave this one guy, it all needs to go toward a new guy. The king needs to lose their support, and all that support needs to go to one man. All right, now as, as this materializes, what we're going to see is that Saul utterly loses his kingdom And God gives David a legitimate claim to the throne. I want to read the beginning of chapter 18 so we can see the point where where Saul had his first chance to transition his power to David and do this in a a constructive way. But instead, what we're going to see is that as this uh, opportunity arises for good... Saul, in his desire to pursue his bad goal, begins to hate David and want to kill him. So let's look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. It says this, chapter 18, verses 1 through 7. And as soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, now this is after the battle, after David and Goliath, okay? Uh, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, now who's Jonathan? Jonathan is the heir to the throne, Jonathan is Saul's son. All right. So as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. That's David. He wouldn't let David go home. He's going to keep him in the court. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul sent him over so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, and with songs of joy and with musical instruments, the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David, his ten thousands. Man, that's that's pretty that's pretty uh, fun story here. All right, so as we as we work through this passage here, we see Jonathan, the heir to the throne throw his support behind David. The NIV Study Bible has a text note here that talks about this particular uh, exchange. And what it says is that the giving of the robe means handing over the rights of inheritance to David. When he took his robe off and gave it to David, he's passing the mantle of inheritance over to David. And this idea of giving the sword is a sign of submission. It's a sign of the one who is less giving the sword to someone who is greater? What we see happening here is that as Jonathan and David become best friends, Jonathan already knows where this is headed. Jonathan already knows that David's going to be the next king. As a matter of fact, later in chapter 23, verse 17, we even see Jonathan speaking of passing the throne to David. He knew this was going to happen. And so we see the heir to the throne throwing his support behind David. This is a good thing. If we're going to see peaceful transition, this is the kind of thing you need. But what else do we see? We see that the people were excited and happy to see David and his success. They're celebrating not only that, but we even see the servants of Saul celebrating David's success. Their support is behind him. So what does that mean? Everything is set up. Everything is set up for Saul to say, this is the guy. To say, yeah, maybe I killed my thousands, but this guy right here, he killed his tens of thousands. And he's with me. And we're in this together. And over time, guess what? He's going to be your next king. I'm going to train him. I'm going to show him. And the guy that, that is ready to take the throne, that's, that's doing all these amazing things, I'm going to hand the keys to the kingdom over to him. And we're going to have a peaceful transition. And David's the guy. You all want him to be king anyway. And the Lord is against me. He said it's taken from me. He had this moment right here, right here to step in and say, I want to follow God. I want to repent. I want to turn away. I want to not do this anymore. But Saul was committed to a bad goal. He was committed to the preservation of his kingdom. He was committed to his legacy. And he didn't care what God had set before him. How does the passage continue? In the next verse, verse 8 and 9, we see this. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And he whined. Oh, wait, it doesn't say whined. Sorry. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And the answer is... Yeah, exactly. That's the point, right? This is where this is headed from, from all time. And I love this. And Saul eyed David from that day on. And what have we said about Saul? That he has a vision problem, right? And what's he doing? Where are his eyes? Are they on obeying the Lord? No, he's given David the stink eye. He's going to track this dude down. He is now his nemesis. This is where we see Saul completely defy the consequences that God had had brought him for his sin. At this point, it it had to be clear to him that the kingdom was going to David. At this point, it had to be clear to him that David was the better neighbor that, that Samuel warned him about in chapter 15. But Saul's defying God, and he's going to do whatever it takes to keep David off the throne. So from this point in chapter 18 to through chapter 20, Saul tries to kill David between five and eight times depending on how you count. Okay, In just that short little window, depending on how you count the attempts, Saul tries to kill David between five and eight times. Now right here, we we just stopped in verse 9. Two verses later in chapter 11, we see that Saul gets so mad at David, he throws a spear at him and tries to kill him. And he missed. So you know what he does? He throws another one. Like, he tried twice. He threw two spears at David trying to kill him. And later, we're we're going to blow past this in the future, but later in chapter 19, he throws another spear at him. Like, by his own bare hands, he's trying to kill David by launching these spears at him. All right, but those were moments of rage. Those were moments of rage. Saul was also a clever man. He didn't just want to kill David in fits of rage. He was going to do this methodically, and I think what's interesting is David is going to take a tip from Saul and a way to kill Uriah in the future. Saul had this great idea. All right, I think think what I need to do is deal with this problem through promotion, which is a great idea. If a guy's giving you a problem here, let's let's promote him to a place where he can't succeed and watch him fail, and then he can can rest in his own grave, right? Right? Okay, so here's this guy, this is David, in the months, early years past David and Goliath, where if he was between 15 and 20 when he fought Goliath, we're now talking at minimum, somewhere between 17 and like 22, where he would be. And Saul says, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put this punk kid in charge of a bunch of grizzled war veterans and send him out to battle because this is not gonna go well. Either the veterans are gonna eat his lunch or he's gonna make some classic mistake and he's going to get himself killed. So he, he promotes David and sends him out to battle. Watching, hoping, expecting failure. Instead, David is immensely successful. And he wins just about every battle he goes out against. It's also, and Saul's sitting there trying to pull out his hair because I just want to kill this guy and all I've done is made his reputation better. Now, remember, he's committed to a goal. And when you're committed to a goal, that's the wrong goal. You make dumb decisions. I know. I'll give the heir to the throne more opportunity to garner power. So I'll send him out to battle, and he wins. And what's, he, what's the result? More power. All right, so then he has another idea. Okay, clearly that's not going to work because he just keeps winning these battles. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to give him one of my daughters as a wife so that then I could demand a bride price for my wife, and he's poor, and he won't have any cash, so I know what I'm going to do. This is awesome and gross. He says, hey, David, go get me 100 foreskins from those uncircumcised Philistines, and that will be the bride price for my daughter. Gross. Okay, I just got to tell you that is a way to not end up my son-in-law. All right, so uh, the, he, he goes out, and David wasn't going to go fight these guys one-on-one. And I don't know if that's what Saul had in mind, that maybe David would go out and pull a Samson and get himself killed. But David now has the loyalty of the army behind him. So he and his men go out and they kill not just 100, but 200 Philistines and deliver that gross package to the the king, to Saul. And Saul is, is then forced to give David a daughter to be his wife. Now just think about that. Now David has a claim to the throne because he's part of the royal family. So this attempt to pursue a bad goal ends up blowing everything up. I want you guys to listen to chapter 18, verse uh, 28 through 30. This is after uh, Michael had become his wife. It says, But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. Man, all of Saul's plans had backfired. David was now his son-in-law. David now had a claim to the throne, and David's reputation had increased even more. So now, not only did Jonathan love David, but Saul's daughter, Michael, loved him as well. Saul's house and his commanders and his servants all loved and respected David. So then Saul decides, all right, I've got to take this shadow war to the next level. I've I've got to just go full-blown conspiracy, and I've got to try to get David's best friend, Jonathan, to try to kill him. And I've got to get some of the servants to try to kill David. David. So chapter 19, verse 1, says that Saul tried to convince Jonathan and all his servants that they should kill David. But, of course, Jonathan won't have it. Okay, So Jonathan intercedes for David. And listen to that conversation in chapter 19, verses 4 through 7. It says, And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, This is so important. Listen to the humility here from Jonathan. Let not the king sin against his servant David because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, I swear. As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death today. Right? That's like he's whispering that under his breath because clearly he doesn't mean this. And Jonathan called David, and, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Now, I can't help but see a second opportunity. All right, everybody has bad days. Everybody has bad moments when they throw a spear at somebody. Okay? So he had this moment now. All right, he's had a chance to walk it back Jonathan has shown his dad the error of his ways and now we have a chance for him to repent and move forward but Saul is so blind he cannot see what's going on verse 8 says that there was a war again and David goes out and fights again and wins again and Saul is jealous again like it's that quick you don't even finish the chapter he can't mean this promise for longer than a minute Because he's not really committed to following the Lord. He's committed to his own goal. And every time David does something great, it's a threat to Saul. And when he feels threatened, he has to get defensive. And when you have this much power, what do you do when you get defensive? You kill people. And so he decides, I've got to kill David. So he's going to kill him again. And this time, uh, he's going to kill David in in uh, in his bed. So Michael, his wife, helps him flee from Saul. Now Jonathan has interceded for him, and Michael has defied uh, her father. All these things, they're helping David stay alive. And we're going to see Jonathan helps again. Now, David gets out of town, he runs and he goes and he hides with Samuel. So at this point we've seen Jonathan stand up for David, we've seen Michael stand up for David, and now we're going to see something else. So David goes and he hides with Saul. And Saul sends messengers, sorry, he hides with Samuel. And Saul sends messengers to go find David with Samuel. And on their way there, they get to where Samuel is, and the servants of Saul begin to prophesy. They begin to, they're they're filled with the Spirit, and they can't go against David. And they're prophesying in the Lord, and and this is crazy. And so God has intervened and kept them from uh, taking David. So Saul sends another group. And guess what happens to this group? They begin to prophesy. The Spirit of the Lord comes on them and they can't go and take David. So Saul sends another group. And the Spirit of the Lord comes on them, and they begin to prophesy, and they can't go take David. And so Saul says, enough of this. I'm going to go. And so Saul goes down there himself to go and get David. And the Spirit of the Lord comes down, and even Saul begins to prophesy and cannot stand against David. What do we see? We see Michael stood against him. Jonathan stood against him. And now the Lord himself is standing against Saul. And what's interesting is it says that that Saul was left a day and a night naked. I would assume this is at least in a semi-public place, maybe a public place. And in just a minute, we're going to see that Saul is mad at Jonathan and yells at him. By the, uh, the, the nakedness of his mother, he should be ashamed as of the nakedness of his mother. This idea of nakedness is an idea of shame. So here Saul is, stood against God, stood against David, and we see him left ashamed. Does that stop him? from? Surely by now, are you seeing the ten plagues? Are you seeing this? How like over and over again he has opportunity and over and over again he keeps defying God so that his sin is utterly contemptible and we can all see where Saul is. So as we move through chapter 19, we come to chapter 20. And this is the the story where uh, Jonathan decides to protect David and David hides in the field and Jonathan's going to shoot arrows and you know there's the whole thing of I'm going to give you the signal and then I'm going to tell you, hey, my, my dad wants to kill you or you can come back home. Because Jonathan didn't really believe that Saul wanted to kill David. Uh, until this conversation right here in chapter 20. Listen to this, starting in verse 30. It says, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse, that's David, to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? You see how he's using that as an insult, this idea of nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. What's the lie he's saying right here? He's saying that this is about Jonathan. Right here he's saying, I just want your legacy. Now look at how the passage continues. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him, to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. How committed was Saul to this idea of preserving his own legacy? I want you to understand that it's Saul's legacy. This is all about Saul. As much as he wants to believe it's about Jonathan, it's not. This is not about Jonathan. This is not about the kids. This is not about the future. This is about Saul and his name. How do I know? Because no parent is going to throw a spear at their son who they want to inherit all the kingdom. Like, does that make any sense? This is all for you. Die. I mean, you see that in a movie, right? Because we've seen that. that that's been like the twisted uh, hero, or villain, whatever, who, who tries to, you know, hurt somebody for their own good. And like the whole time we're watching and you're just scratching your head and you think, you're an idiot. Like, that's not how this works. How can Saul say it's for Jonathan when he throws a spear at him? Because it's not. It's all for himself. This whole story is Saul being committed to something that God said he couldn't have. And throughout the whole story, we see him make mistake after mistake after mistake, defending what he should have never been pursuing. Man so easy to distance ourselves from Saul. But how many times do we make mistake after mistake pursuing something we know we have no business pursuing? How many times do we have an opportunity to repent and turn away from this bad goal but we're so committed to the bad goal that no matter the outcomes of what we experience, we say, I'm going to do it anyway because it's about me. It's about what I want. I'm going to pursue this no matter where it takes me and let the bodies fall around me as I pursue my goal headlong forward. The warning here is, if our goals do not align with God's goals, we will reap destruction. Sometimes that destruction is subtle. Sometimes it is small. And what I love about the story of David, it's all, and, and Saul here is, is almost hyperbole. Like, how wrong can it go? Saul. Like, if you want to know just how bad it can be, the answer is simply Saul. Now, by God's grace and his mercy, we don't often feel that level of consequence. But when we have a sinful goal and a sinful desire, we're blind to what everybody else has to say. Because I want it, and you can't keep me from it. And any intervention is just viewed like Jonathan, a betrayal. How dare you, how dare you take his side? What side was Jonathan taking? He was taking the side of truth. Jonathan saw it from the very beginning. The anointing was on David. Jonathan said, I'm not against you, Dad. I'm for the Lord. And I may be telling you something you don't want to hear, but you need to hear it. And Saul does what we all do to that friend who tells us the truth that we don't want to hear. He threw a spear at him. Now, we don't do it physically, please. But we do that, right? Those relationship-ending blows... That person has told us something we don't want to hear. And we cancel them. We shut them out. We find ways to believe a lie is truth. We self-justify over and over and over again. And we make things that aren't ultimate, ultimate. What is his goal? His goal is power. His goal is reputation. His goal is his own personal dynasty to l- and leave for legacy. His, his idea is to make his name great. What are some of the goals that we pursue? What are some of the things that we chase after? Are they sinful, prideful, self-interested goals? Now, I just want you to think about this for a second. Let me make this personal for you. I want you to think about a conflict you've had recently with your spouse. And if you can't think of one, think harder, okay? So think about a conflict that you've had with your spouse. Is your goal conflict resolution or finding a way back to status quo? Is that your goal? You think, oh, well, yeah, we just want to resolve this conflict. We want to get back to normal. And i got to ask you, what is a better goal? What is a better goal than mere conflict resolution or going back to status quo? A better goal is expressing selfless love for your spouse. A better goal is looking to the needs of your spouse. Pursuing conflict resolution and getting life back to normal as soon as we can can simply be a mask for defending the bad habits that protect your favorite sin. I just want to get back to normal. Do you know how many, like, husbands and wives in counseling I want, I want to inflict physical harm on because of that statement? I just want things back to normal. Why? Like, normal was killing you guys. Like, why do you want to go back to normal? Like, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah, it was great. Are you sure? Because all I see is destruction in the wake of that normal. Why do you want to go back to normal? Why do we want to defend status quo? When we have conflict with our spouse, the goal should not be conflict resolution. The goal should not be status quo. The goal should be, like, how do I die to self today? How do I learn to love myself less so that I am not back in this situation tomorrow? How do I make sure that that, that my goals are right? My goal is not normal. My goal is Christ. Man, what what if you've got a money management problem? Okay, is the idea, I just need to get control of my finances. I mean, that's fine. That's good. But what is it really? It's about surrender. It's about understanding that everything you have belongs to the Lord. It's about understanding that denying ourselves something that may be like morally neutral is good for our souls. Because self-discipline teaches us, if I can say no to the 99 cent coke, right, that disciplines me to say no to some other pleasure that I seek in the future. This thing is morally neutral. It doesn't matter. But I need to tell myself no because I need to learn to tell myself no. Here comes this thing that's way more tempting, that's not morally neutral. Am I disciplined in telling myself no? You see, it's not about necessarily just getting your finances in order. It's about having the right goal. Is having your finances in order a good thing? Yes, but what is our goal? Understanding that our ultimate fulfillment is found in Christ and not in ourselves. We have to throw all this other stuff aside and focus on what God has called us to. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Who who sets that race before us? It is the Lord, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, went through something unpleasurable, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen to uh, Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verses 12 through 14. He says, not that I've already obtained it, that's the resurrection from the dead, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's your goal? What's your goal? Where are you focused? What are we pursuing? Are we pursuing our own heart pleasures? Are we pursuing ourselves or are we willing to die to ourselves in order to make God our true and primary goal? We read this just a few months ago in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 25 says this. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Listen, for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Man, did Saul need to hear this. He he was trying to gain the whole world, and what did he forfeit in the process? What are you pursuing? What is hindering you? Where do you need some goal realignment understanding that we are called to walk in obedience to Christ called to see him as ultimate called to see him as the one who can truly satisfy what's he say to the woman at the well he says that he offers living water or if we will come and drink of him we will never be thirsty again he, he, has an oper- he, he satisfies in a way that no pursuit of this world could ever satisfy. We follow Christ and set him up. We can say all these things of the world can pass away, yet if I have Christ, I am satisfied. He is enough. That is where our hope lays, and if it lays with anything but that, we will find ourselves disappointed and discouraged. So what is your goal? Where is your heart? What are you pursuing? As we enter into this time of reflection, uh, you have an opportunity as we sing these songs to lay these goals down before the Lord and ask him, ask him to help you. Help, say, help me make you the goal of my life. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to make him your ultimate goal, what it means to quit pursuing other things that won't satisfy We would love to talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. You can find me or find a believer who's sitting next to you, and we'd love to talk with you more about that. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, we thank you for all that you've done. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, just work in our hearts. Help us to love you. Help us to see you as ultimate. Help us not to, uh, to, to chase after these vain things of earth. Help us to be willing to die to self, to set our selfish desires aside, to learn to love the way you did. It's in your name we pray.